Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. We're continuing to work our way through the text, and uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a section of Scripture that follows right on the heels, right on the heels of uh, an encounter with the Pharisees. To, to really understand the thrust of what's being said here, you'd have to recall that the Pharisees are the spiritual leaders of Israel at this point in time. And so the fact that there's a group of people that leave the Pharisees behind and follow after Christ, that's a very significant event. We're going to unpack that a little bit more as we get into it this morning. But uh, we're going to read Matthew chapter 12, and then as is our custom, we'll pray, ask the Lord to open our eyes to see and our hearts to believe with faith what it is that he is trying to show us this morning. Just to uh, refresh your memory, before we get to today's text, which is 15 to 21, I'm just going to read you from last week. He argues with the Pharisees over the, what is lawful to do on the Sabbath, and then they say, is it lawful to heal? And of course it is, so he heals the man. In verse 13, it says, he said to the man, stretch out your hand, and the man stretched it out, and it was restored healthy like the other. Verse 14, the Pharisees went away and conspired against him how to destroy him. That brings us to today's text. So immediately following on the heels of their walking away saying, okay, we've got to end this man's life. We've got to bring an end to what he's doing. Verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. I want to read you that section from the prophet Isaiah one more time. I'm going to change the English wording of it a little bit if it is still completely true to the original languages. Read with me, going back to verse 18. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the nations will hope. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for speaking to us through scripture. And Father, we're all painfully aware of our desperate need for you. And it's a glorious need, Father, that you've created in us. Having made each of us in your image, you desire that each of us would turn to you for the satisfaction of our souls. We pray, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, just as we sang a few minutes ago, that we would find nourishment here, that you would revive us, and that you would show us, Lord, 
our dependence upon you and our dependence upon your son. We thank you so much for the salvation that is given to us through his death on the cross. Father, help us to believe and to believe more and more day by day in all that is there for us in Christ. We pray, Lord, as we look at this text this morning that we would understand what our responsibility is to you, our teacher. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have you ever wondered about the anatomy of a light bulb? It's not as simple as you might think. Most of you will probably answer, a light bulb is a very simple contraption. It's basically a wire that goes up inside. It's a glass bulb. It holds an inert gas. This particular one holds krypton gas, not kryptonite, krypton gas, which is a real gas, by the way. An inert gas. The uh, filament is usually made out of tungsten. This particular filament is made out of tungsten. And when you pass electricity through it, it causes the filament to burn, which then creates light. That's what most of you would answer, but it's way, way, way more complex than that. In point of fact, this is an amazing feat of chemical and electrical engineering. You see, what is actually happening is you have in this tungsten filament, tungsten molecules, tungsten atoms, and if you're familiar with uh, molecular theory, you understand that for every atom that you have, you have a, a nucleus, and the nucleus is uh, surrounded by a series of protons and electrons. Most of you from your high school chemistry class can recall that the electron is negatively charged and the proton is positively charged. And as a result of electromagnetic forces, these protons and electrons are operating on each other in a certain way. They're exerting a force upon each other in a certain way that binds them because, you know, electrons and protons are negative, they're opposites, and so they're drawn together in a positive and a positive, those things repel each other, and so you have a series of positives and a series of negatives, but in the way that they're positive and the way that they're negative, they're all binding together to this, this nucleus of this, of this atom, right, this main thing that's here. What happens is, when you pass an electron through that atom, that atom is just sitting there, minding its own business, it's not hurting anyone, it's not like, you know, trying to change the universe or any kind of weird thing like that, it's just sitting there, its own unique deal. As soon as you pass an electron straight through it, well, it doesn't really like it that much. How many of you would like to have something shot straight through you? Well, the, the molecule doesn't really like it that much, and so when you shoot an electron through this thing, what ends up happening is the electron carries with it a negative charge, which is it impacts this molecule, it disrupts and it confuses and it throws out of alignment all the other electrons and protons that are bound to this thing. And so what happens is, is this electron pushes through the middle of this molecule, it excites the other electrons that are already in that molecule, and so then they begin to jump off of the molecule. As the electron passes through, then there is a void left there, and it's only gone a short distance as this electron is shooting its way this way, and this is oh, it still needs me, they still want me, I can go back, and then it makes a return back. Now, as that electron is passing through, it's carrying a lot of kinetic energy. And so as it hits the other electrons that are already there, and as they jump off, they have a lot of kinetic energy built up inside of them. And so they have to release that energy before they return back to the tungsten molecule. And so they release that energy in the form of photons. And the photon is what emits light. That's how a light bulb really works. It's an amazing contraption. 
It's ingenious. You know how many light bulbs Thomas Edison built before he got one that actually worked? You see, he studied for years and years, and he understood the chemistry of it, and he understood all of the science behind it, but actually making it work, that's a different matter altogether. When it comes to filaments, they said he tried something like over 2,000 different fibers and materials before he came to the one that would burn efficiently. This little doodad that I'm holding here in my hands, which you and I refer to as a light bulb, is the product of thousands upon thousands of hours of study. And you and I can go to the store and buy it for about $2. You can't hear it from where you're sitting. I can hear it. But as you sort of tap it, you can hear the filament inside jingling around. If you're like me and you're a klutz, you've probably broken one or two of these in your lifetime trying to change them out. And it's not a big deal because if you break one, it's only $2, right? This little contraption that represents thousands upon thousands of hours of study and disciplined effort, to you and me, it's relatively cheap. It's not all that significant. If you broke this light bulb, you wouldn't pick it up, would you? Try to glue it back together, try to get it to work again. It's not like a car. It's not like we have light bulb mechanics sitting around make a living off of this thing because it's so in inexpensive to make, right? Ask yourself this question. If Jesus was changing a light bulb in his house and he broke it on accident, which is sort of blasphemous, but just work with me for a second. <laughs> if he broke it, would he glue it back together and try to restore it and revive it? Some of you are thinking, no, in his humanity, being a man just like you and me, he'd just do the same thing that you and I would do. He'd just go buy a new one. Some of you are thinking, no, in his deity, in his divinity, he would obviously, out of compassion, restore the light bulb to its proper functioning. And those of you who are really spiritual, you're thinking, trick question. Jesus would just glow and produce the light himself. <laughs> I can't tell you exactly what Jesus would do with a light bulb. But I can tell you what he would do with a bruised reed and a smoking wick. The text before us today says that Jesus has a heart of compassion. He's gentle. And as the text quotes the prophet Isaiah, specifically, it says in verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. Now, a reed is a fairly common device. Shepherds will pluck them, and they will poke some holes in them, and they'll, they'll play them as like a flute type of contraption. Of course, like any musical instrument, especially any kind of a a wind instrument, you know, you, you're blowing in this thing, spit and saliva gets into it, and eventually the reed gets soggy and it falls apart. Well, and they also had these, these wicks that they would, you know, candles that they would use to light their homes. And flax are just like modern-day light bulbs. They're relatively easy to make. Jewish culture, there's not any problem. They mass-produce these things. And so if you have a faulty or a defective wick, or if somehow your wick is damaged and it's no good anymore, it's not a big deal. There are people that will be selling these things for relatively cheap in the marketplace, and you can just go get a new one. 
Reeds are easy to break, and wicks are easy to break. They're very common. You can use them for any number of different purposes. You can use a reed like a ruler. You can use a reed as a, as a flute. You can use a reed as a, a switch to kind of whip at the sheep and to drive them along. You can use these things for all number of different things. They're, they're basic elements to all of Jewish life. They're, they're just like our modern-day light bulb. And the Scripture says, Jesus has gentleness such that he will not break a reed or snuff out a smoking flax. It won't quench it. Now, what is significant about this description of the Messiah is the context in which we find it. Again, he has just trumped the Pharisees. He has just challenged them openly in their synagogue. They don't think he's legit. They don't think he's right to be doing what he's doing. They challenge him, hey, is it lawful? Is it legal? Is it okay to heal a man? They're more interested in the legalities of healing a man, and he just straight up says basically yes and heals them. Now, for you and me, we'd be like, whoa, he just healed that guy. But for them, they're like, whoa, he just healed that guy on the Sabbath. And we're not going to have that. You and I would be impressed by the miracle. They were shocked at what they perceived to be the breaking of the law. Now, he is aware that they aren't too impressed. In fact, the scripture says they're seeking to kill him now as a result of this. And Jesus, and it's explicit, he is aware of this. It says in verse 15, aware of this, he withdrew from there. He's not going to argue with them. He's not going to pitch a big fuss and get in their face. He's not going to try and debate these guys. He's not going to do that. Now, Scripture says, here, I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry aloud. He will not raise his voice in the streets. The exact wording is no one will hear his voice in the streets. So the general thrust of the passage is the Pharisees don't like what he's done and his response is okay, I'm out of here. I'll see you later. You don't have to like what I've done. I'm going to take my services and my person and all that I am for you someplace else. Now what's significant is verse 15 says many followed him. And he healed them all. So if you're a Jew living in first century Palestine and you see an amazing, miraculous healing and you see the way that the sides instantly polarize, you got Jesus on this side, you got the Pharisees on this side, they're saying what he is doing is illegal and by their law, man law, he deserves to die. Yet here you are with some sort of an infirmity, a disease, some sort of a need. Breaking the law or not, you need him. And so they follow him, and the scriptures are very clear. He healed them all. Have you ever stopped to wonder when Jesus is trying to prove his deity, you know, he could have worked any kind of a miracle. He could have caused the building to just move from there to there. He says, you don't think I'm Messiah? And it's over there. 
He could have said, you know what, I, I will prove to you that I'm the Messiah just by flying. And he could have just gone up and flown around in the air. He said, look at me, I'm flying. He could have said, you know what, in order to prove to you that I'm the Messiah, I'll just make this whole crowd of people fly. And he could just sent them up and let them go around in the sky for a little while and then put them back down. He could have done all of those things. He didn't do any of those things. When we encounter Christ in the Gospels, what's the one way that we see overwhelmingly that he uses his deity? To heal bruised reeds and smoking flax. He performed another number of other miracles. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He performed a number of miracles, but the overwhelming thrust of everything that he was doing in the Gospels is to show his heart is a heart of compassion. So he leaves. He's not going to argue with these guys. He's going to take off. Now, I want you to look very carefully. As Matthew is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit to a bunch, the, the primary audience to which Matthew is writing to is Jewish. As Matthew is writing to a primarily Jewish audience, I want you to look carefully at the quotation. Matthew could have just said, he will not quarrel aloud, he will not cry in the street, he won't hear his voice, he won't break a reed, he won't snuff out a, a wick. He could have just left it at that, but he expands it to include two significant things. There's that, about the heart of the Messiah, and then there's something else here that I want you to see. Verse 18, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. Skip down to verse 21. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Another way to render that is the nations. Everybody. Not just the Jews, but everybody. That's a little bit of a problem for first century Palestinian Jew. See, they didn't think that God was really out there with a heart of love and compassion for everybody. They were pretty sure that God only loved them. This is a major point of contention years later when they're arguing with the Apostle Paul. Don't flip there, just listen. Many of you will recall the story from the book of Acts. Paul is out preaching the gospel, telling about how good Jesus is. He goes to the temple, he's in Jerusalem. They realize that he's there. He's been out planting churches, interacting with Gentiles. He's been embracing a lot of the Gentile customs. And they think, they, they accuse him, it's not technically true, but they accuse him of actually bringing a Greek guy, a Jewish, a, a Gentile guy into the temple. And so they're really ticked off about that. And so they, of course, arrest him when they catch him later the next day. Now, it makes this statement, he, you know, they're obviously really angry with him for a lot of reasons. They want to kill him. This mob is rushing him. He asks to speak to the crowd. He begins to share his testimony. He says, guys, I was just like you once upon a time. I was very zealous for the law, and then one day Jesus Christ appeared to me, and he spoke to me, and they listened to him. See, he's talking about the God that they love and that they worship and that they adore. He's talking about the God that they think they understand. 
And so they're listening to him because he's making his defense and he's talking about the Father. Until he comes to this one statement. Verse 18, he says that Jesus told him, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. You're telling us that the God that we worship says we're not going to listen to the truth about God? Now that kind of sets him on edge. He continues, and I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed them. In other words, what Paul is saying back to God is, I got street cred. They'll, they'll listen to me. I, I can swing this. And look at what Jesus says to the Apostle Paul in verse 21. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles, to the nations. Verse 22, up to this word, they listened to him. So they were willing to listen until he talked about the fact that God wants the nations to hear the good news. And it goes on, they began to shout, raise their voices away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And they, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks, they were flinging dust in the air. And the tribune comes and has to intervene. Why doesn't he deserve to live? Why, why are we going to condemn this man to death? Because what he basically just said was, God wants me to go tell the nations about his grace and his mercy. No, he doesn't. That's their opinion. No, he doesn't. Now, I want you to step back, and I want you to look at Matthew chapter 12. I want you to see it here. The Father has a goal, and then he has means of how he's going to accomplish that goal. The father, speaking through the prophet Isaiah, talks about his son, who is going to be the key to everything. And he says regarding his son, his goal is to bring liberty to the nations. His goal is to proclaim justice to the entire world. That's the ends that the Father has in view. And his means to achieving those ends are this. If you don't like it, if you're going to conspire in your heart to try and stop it, if you're going to argue against it, if you're going to assume that you know what God's will is when there are clearly scriptures which portray his will as something radically different than what you assume to be the case, I'll go away. I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to debate you. I'm not going to raise my voice. I'm not going to get in your face. And we need to understand very carefully here. Jesus isn't going to go along to get along. He's just not going to get along. In fact, later on in Matthew chapter 12, he's going to encounter these guys and they're going to say that the only reason that he's able to do the miracles that he does is because he's operating under the power of Satan. Beelzebub is the word they use. And he's going to debate and argue with them on those things, but he's not trying to convince them. He's trying to convince the people who are listening. 
So he's not going to go along to get along, and he's not going to try and argue them into faith. That's what I need you to see here. He's not going to twist anyone's arm into believing. Because his heart is one of gentleness. His heart is one of compassion. Now, there are a number of ways we can look at the application from this text. And the obvious sort of front and center application is we need to present the gospel. We need to be very straightforward about it. We don't need to go along to get along, so to speak. When people say, well, I think all roads lead to heaven, we can say, not so fast. There's only one. His name is Christ. When people say, I think all religions basically teach the same thing, we can say, I don't think you know very much about religion. We can make those statements accurately, fairly, as long as we do it lovingly. And if they refuse, if they insist that they're right and we're wrong, we don't need, as we follow the example of Christ, to argue with them. We don't need that. We don't need to twist their arm, put them in a full Nelson, say, no, believe in Jesus. Can I let you know a little secret? Faith is always a voluntary act of the soul. You can't make anyone believe. Now, that's the first application. But now I want to step back and I want to show you something else that jumps out from this text. Jesus is the one that can heal us. And he heals everyone who follows him. It's pretty clear. It says right there. Verse 15. Many followed him and he healed them all. He healed them. They followed him. And he healed them. So what does this say about us and what we owe to Christ, our teacher? That's the sermon title for today. What does a student owe his teacher? When we think of Jesus, we see a person who is pure, who is good, who is going to die on the cross to save us from our sins. But he's also our teacher. He's also instructing us. When he engages with the Pharisees, he doesn't say you're just wrong and walk away. He reasons from the scriptures. They're not going to believe. They're going to conspire to destroy him. And he's not going to argue. So he's going to walk away. Which means that if we're going to learn from Christ, we have a responsibility to follow him. I want to step back and I want you to see this very carefully. Jesus is not going to force truth down your throat. You have to want it. You have to want it. This last summer, you all recall, there was a giant teacher strike. Teachers wanted smaller classroom sizes, and, and government didn't want to pay for that, and it was this huge brouhaha. Now, I can't speak for every teacher, but I do know that classroom size is a problem. I'm just curious, if we were to adjust the mentality that education is an absolute right and that we should force every child to go to school, I'm just wondering what the teachers would think if we would just say, you know what, 
high school student, doesn't want to go to school, always causing problems for his teacher, always rebelling against it. I'm just wondering if we would just step back and say, you know what, if you don't want to learn, you don't have to. And that's a terrible consequence. That's a tragic result. If you don't want to know, you don't have to know. If you don't want to be educated, you don't have to be educated. The greatest philosopher, one of the greatest philosophers of all time, not a Christian, Socrates, do you know what he said? The most terrible price for not knowing is not knowing. And yet, as we look here at what Christ is saying, if you don't want to know the truth, if you don't want to be educated, if you're going to conspire against your teachers, if you're going to make life miserable for them, Jesus' example is, I don't have to force this down anybody's throat. I wonder what we could do for classroom sizes if we just told the students who absolutely hated being there, this is going to wreck your life, but so be it. You just don't need to show up anymore. Most of the teachers are like, yay, eager students, that's wonderful, I'm in favor of that. We have it in our heads that learning is a fundamental right, but it's not. It's a privilege. Christ doesn't have to teach us, but he does. Christ doesn't have to reason to us from the word of God, but he does. Indeed, the Father doesn't have to speak to us through the scriptures, but he does. And so what is our responsibility to our teacher if he is going to take upon himself the responsibility to speak to us? What do we owe him? Well, number one, and the text is very clear, we owe it to ourselves to go to him, to follow him, to hear him. We owe it to him because he is deemed appropriate to speak to us. We owe it to him to go and to be taught by him. Now, nobody goes unless they think that there's a benefit involved. Nobody's going to go unless they think that there's some positive outcome. Nobody's going to go unless they think, you know what, if I follow this guy, he might just heal me. When Jesus shows up in the, in the synagogue, when he's having this confrontation with the Pharisees, he says, yes, it is lawful. He gets into an extended discussion about the legalities of law, and he heals the man. He has what we all need, which means when he says, okay, these guys are obviously conspiring to kill me. I'm out of here. The choice is very crystal. Do you stick with these guys who have made your life exceedingly difficult and never done anything on this level to bring healing into your life? Or do you go to this guy who's teaching things totally differently from a different heart and has the capacity to bring the healing and the redemption that you need? Listen to me, if you're here today and you're going back and forth, I like Jesus, but some of the things I hear in the scriptures don't quite fit well with other things that I know from the world. Everything you think you know from the world is false. Everything you can get from Christ is true. But the scriptures bear witness to this. You know, Jim Jones, Jonestown cult, 
group of people in South America and killed themselves by drinking Kool-Aid. They've totally ruined the Kool-Aid illustration. Like, we can't, we can't use that illustration anymore. I, I want to say to you, drinking from the stern of the scriptures, drinking from the fountain of God's word is like drinking Kool-Aid. But as soon as I say that, you're all going to be like, oh, I know what that's like. I don't know where you're going with this. I kind of chuckle because it's true. We need to be careful of drinking Kool-Aid from, you know, people not named Jesus. Uh, but let's hear what Jesus has to say here, okay? Hebrews 11. I'm just going to throw this up, all right? Hebrews 11. It says in Hebrews chapter 11, without faith, it is impossible to please him. It's talking about God. It is impossible to please God without faith for whoever would draw near to God must, two things, believe that he exists. Number one. And number two, that he rewards those who seek him. In other words, if you come to Jesus, there are two ways to approach this. I say, you know what? If you don't drink water, you're going to die because you're parched and you're thirsty and you're dehydrated. If you don't drink water, you will die. And of course, you're like, well, okay, I feel guilty. I guess I should go and drink water. That's a lot, how a lot of preaching goes. And there's absolutely a lot of truth in that. But here's the other side of the equation. Not only if you drink from Christ, will you not die, but drinking from Christ is sweet. It tastes good. It's like Kool-Aid. And unfortunately, Jim Jones has destroyed that forever. But hear me. When you go to Christ, it's not simply that he saves you from being parched. You're not truly drawing near to him, in fact. Unless you draw near to him with the perspective that he will reward you for doing so. In other words, when we approach things like Bible study, when we approach things like our Christian discipleship, when we talk about what it means to be a quote-unquote good Christian, we can do it one of two ways. And I think both are valid, and I actually think you have to present both truths. Number one, if you don't, you're going to die. Number one, if you don't trust in Christ, if you don't give your life to him, you will die. You will suffer, and it will be tortured agony because you are meant for a relationship for him, with him. Number two, drawing near to him is actually wonderful. Not only will you not die, but you'll experience the sweetest joy and the deepest pleasures and the greatest satisfactions of your life. So it's not so much just get out of hell. It is that. But it's also very much find the deepest longing of your soul and be satisfied. He rewards those who draw near to him. C.S. Lewis said, sometimes when it comes to a teacher, a teacher cannot help a student until a student is willing to place his confidence in the teacher. Quoting from The Abolition of Man, this is a loose paraphrase, C.S. Lewis makes the statement, a, a inexperienced mountain climber up on the side of a cliff. He's inexperienced and not sure how to, how to get down off of this ledge that he's got himself up onto. The experienced mountain climber comes along and says, in order for you to get down, you're going to have to go a little higher up. And the activity of going a little higher up just completely goes against everything that this guy knows. He's afraid. He's gotten too high. He wants to get down. He doesn't think that going up is necessary to getting back down. Yet he can't find the right way down. Or it's like the child that's gotten a splinter stuck in his finger. And it's festered, and it hurts, and we don't like it. And mom says, I can fix it for you. And she goes and she gets a needle. Wait, what? How is that going to take away the pain of the splinter? And yet, we know that you've got to dig that thing out of there. It's just going to keep hurting. 
And so we encounter this often, that when we come to the Word of God, He asks us to do things, He asks us to trust Him, He asks us to follow through, and it sounds kind of like, here, drink this Kool-Aid. And Jim Jones has warned us all what happens when you drink the Kool-Aid. And so when we reproach what Jesus is saying here in the Bible, you got to just know that they were really struggling with this. Here are the Pharisees. Here are the orthodox, established, licensed, ordained ministers. These are the guys we have been trusting in and looking towards for our teaching for centuries. And this guy is offering us some Kool-Aid. Follow Jesus even when it goes against all that you think you know. Jesus is not actually selling you poison. He's not actually prescribing a, a, a remedy that's going to ultimately hurt you and kill you. It appears that way sometimes. But Jesus is the only one that understands what's going on inside your soul. Not the Pharisees and not any other world-renowned religious teacher, be they orthodox or rank heretics. Christ is the one that sees, and he's the one that can heal, which means that when I ask the question, what do you owe your teacher? Number one, you owe him your trust. You got to trust him, and you got to place your confidence in him, even though it appears he's offering you Kool-Aid. Number two, you owe him, I'm going to use the word docility. You won't find the word docile in the scriptures. You find a slightly different expression. When they turn their backs on the Pharisees to go follow Jesus, to be healed by him, they are conscientiously choosing to subject themselves to his teaching. Which means that they have to, if they're going to follow him all the way through, actively practice a form of self-scrutiny, self-examination, where they're going to have to do away with all of their preconceived notions and built-in prejudices and Judaistic biases in order to hear what Jesus is saying. So I'm going to use the word docile. You have to actually submit yourself to the instruction of Christ. The scripture uses the expression soft heart as opposed to a hard heart. The first scripture, I think, I think I'm just going to jump to Ephesians 4. 18. We're running short on time, so I'm going to hustle. The Apostle Paul, writing in Ephesians 4, uh, talking about those who don't know the Lord, says they are darkened in their understanding. They don't get it. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance. Going back to the first expression, they're darkened in their understanding. They are alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And look at what it says here. Due to their hardness of heart. I'm going to read you a couple of other scriptures and we're going to move on. Ezekiel 3, 7, the house of Israel will not be willing to listen for they are not willing to listen to me because all the house of Israel have a hard 
forehead and a stubborn heart. Zechariah 7.12. They made their hearts diamond hard, diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words of the Lord of hosts and sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, the great anger came upon them from the Lord of hosts. We owe it to Jesus as our teacher to actively examine our hearts and ask whether or not we're truly allowing ourselves to be teachable, to be moldable, to be worked on by the scriptures. Number three, we owe it to our teacher, to Jesus, to think. And this is where I think a lot of us struggle. We're okay with Jesus. We're putting our faith and our confidence in him. Yes, that's good. We understand we have to allow ourselves to be molded. We understand we have to allow ourselves to be teachable. What do you mean I actually have to exert some intellectual effort? What do you mean I actually have to think about it? You know, and I use this as a routine sermon illustration, two plus two equals four, right? But do you actually stop to think about what that signifies? Two, a quantity of two, two in elements, two items of a particular substance, conjoined, being joined together with two other items, and then this produces, producing the total sum of four. Well, we understand the fact, two plus two equals four, but do we actually stop and pause and think about it? Most of us, you know, we had this sort of light bulb moment when we were in kindergarten or maybe grade one, trying to learn what two plus two equals, and most of us haven't really given it much thought since. Two plus two is just something that we normally can just add in our mind without conscious thought. Just like we can say one half plus one half equals one. Some of you thought I was going to say two halves, which is the same thing. What's two halves? It's one. Now, how many of you, when you approach the scriptures, think about it? See, I say, how many of you know how a light bulb works? Oh, yeah, it's a filament, some electricity shoots through it, no big deal. It was a big deal to Thomas Edison. And for all those people in the early 1900s, late 1800s, who got the Edison light bulb, it was a big deal to them. You give me a piece of glass that is glowing, you are amazing. I can read books late into the night. I can do dishes past dark. This is ingenious. So many of us just take something so simple for granted. We don't think about it. And it's like that with the scriptures. You have to go to Bible study because you have to think about it. What did you talk about at Bible study? Oh, you know, Jesus is good. He loves us. Cool. I'm sure a little bit more was said than that. Is there anything for your mind to chew on? Is there anything for your soul to be fed with? In what way did that move you? In what way did you actually take your soul and crank it through the process? How did you ex approach the question, what does this say about the Father? What does this say about me? What does this say about the way that the Father is trying to change my life for the better? What did you learn about a Bible study? Jesus loves us. 
there was so much more than that that was said. And I'm sure there was so much more you could have pulled out of it if you had meditated and thought about it. There was so much more that wasn't said but was still there and available for you to be fed with. I get that often. How come you talk about this? Because it's only an hour. Most people wish I wouldn't go that long. There is untold wealth here in this book. If you would think about it. It says in the Bible, we're called to think. Psalm 119, verses 97 to 99. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. What do you suppose he's saying there? He's not clearing his mind and going, um, he's not doing that. That word meditation from a Christian perspective means he is thinking about the law. He's thinking about it. What do you suppose he has to think about it that it would take him all day and all night? What does it say about the Father? What does it say about me? What does it say about the Father who's trying to heal me? So you owe the Lord a soft heart. You owe the Lord your ability to think about what he is saying. He gave you that mind for a reason. You owe the Lord your trust and your confidence. I mean, just in terms of reflecting on this text, Jesus never once abrogates the law. He never once sets aside the law. The Pharisees ask him the question, is it lawful? And what does he just, what, no, I'm just going to do whatever I want. No, no, no. Have you not read about David? Are you not familiar with the teachings regarding the, 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 pre, the priests and the, the guys who offer up sacrifices? Are you not familiar with those things? In other words, why don't you stop and think about it? Everything we see here in this text, you got to trust Jesus, you got to follow Jesus. You got to be willing to have a soft heart to hear him teach. You got to be willing to think. And lastly, it's going to require effort. It's going to require study. Listen to me, church. It's going to require study. I don't see anywhere in the Bible where they had to study. This is from Nehemiah 8.13. On the second day, the heads of fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. They studied it. Ezra 7.10. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law. The word denotes prolonged intense activity. He's applying himself to what? To the process of thinking. Psalm 111.2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. And I already quoted it. Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all day long. It's going to require effort. To make yourself soft and pliable in the hands of the Lord, it's going to require effort. To hear what the Lord is going to say to you, it's going to require diligence, study, applying yourself. And all of this begins with trusting that what the Lord has for you is good. And that He can heal you. 
I toyed around with the idea of breaking this light bulb, like at the beginning of the message. So then I could like really drive home the idea, like, do you guys think I should put these pieces together? Like, you know, do you think I should like try to restore the light bulb? No, because it's a $2 light bulb. Jesus, I don't really know what Jesus would do with a light bulb. But if the scripture is going to describe Jesus as the kind of man that's not going to break a light bulb, not going to bruise a smoldering wick, not, not going to snuff out a smoldering wick or bruise a broken reed, how much more compassionate is it to us who are created in his image? Do you know the longest light bulb that is still burning? that hasn't burned out. They actually keep records of these things for Guinness World Book of Records. It's called the Centennial Light. You can find it at a firehouse in Livermore, California. You want to take a guess at how long the longest light bulb has been burning? About 110 years. It's one of the original Edison designs. It was produced by the Shelby Electric Company from Shelby, Ohio. Earliest records indicate that it was initially installed in a a hose cart house. This is before the rise of the automobile and motorized fire trucks. It's still, you can go online and you can Google it, Centennial Light Bulb. They have a webcam that is focused on it. You can log in and watch it. It is still burning to this day. It's one of the original Edison light bulbs. It was installed, they approximate around 1898. 1899, so it's somewhere around 115 years old, give or take. Still burning, still burning. Did you know that? It's still burning. Original Edison design, patented by Edison. It's cool shaped. It's got a teardrop shape to it. Still burning. They first noticed it in 1972. They were replacing the light bulbs in the firehouse. They had were moving from the old house to a new house, and they were taking stuff down and getting ready to prepare this building for demolition. They looked at this thing and they're like, whoa, holy cow. That thing looks old. And then they called in witnesses and started going through the old records, maintenance logs and all this kind of stuff. And sure enough, 1898, 1899, somewhere in there. One of the original light bulbs. It was either a 30 watt or a 60 watt. They're not sure. Currently it produces about four watts. It's really gotten dim. But it's still burning. 115, 114 years later, it's not made with the same types of materials that our modern-day light bulbs are. In fact, the glass was hand-blown, where they put glass in a furnace, and it came out all hot and jelly, and they blew it to make the form that it's in. Amazing. You know what they realized as they've studied light bulb technology? what leads to light bulbs burning out. They say, you know, somebody needs to make a longer lasting light bulb. Well, the original light bulb is still going. One of the original ones is still burning. What leads to a light bulb breaking is not it being turned on and left on, but on and off. You see, as the bulb heats up, everything inside of it expands, and then as it's turned off, everything cools, and that expansion and contraction produces cracks in the filament. And over time, those cracks eventually break, separating the electrical flow. 
you as a Christian are intended by the Father to be a light to the world. And his desire is that you would shine brightly. And as your pastor, I just gave you this warning. The problems that I encounter and the problems that you encounter come. When we step away from the study, when we cool our jets, so to speak, when we wake up one morning and we say, I'm not going to be devoted to the Lord, I'm not going to give myself to the study of his word, I'm going to think about something else today. And that turns into a week or six weeks. And sooner or later, that lack of devotion, that lack of attention to what your teacher is trying to teach you produces fissures in your soul. When I have people in my office who are in tears, who have made horrible mistakes, it's not because they're not Christian, it's not because they don't love the Lord, it's not because they don't trust in Jesus. The mechanics of a light bulb in terms of its longevity, are the same mechanics for our souls. We're meant to give ourselves to the Lord. He can heal us. And we're never meant to leave his side. What do you owe your teacher? You owe him your trust and your confidence. You've got to be willing to walk away from every other teacher to cling to Christ. You owe him a soft heart. You owe him thinking. You must think what he says to you. You must think it over, meditate on it. And you're going to owe yourself, you owe it to him to give yourself to the persistent and disciplined study of his word. And when you do that, the angels in heaven sing for joy. You can log on and you can look at a webcam pointed at a light bulb that's been shining for 115 some odd years now. They had a celebration in 1998, and then they did it again in 1999 because they weren't sure what year was the 100 mark. They had this giant party in Livermore, California, where they basically sang happy birthday to a light bulb. I'm not joking, this actually happened. It's a light bulb. If we can take such joy in a light bulb that has been that persistent in doing what it was designed to do by its original maker, what do you think the angels in heaven are going to sing about when they see you? When they hear you having lived a full life of faithfulness, being committed to Christ, your teacher? I'm sure it's going to be way better than the centennial celebration in Livermore, California both in 98 and 99. And that's my prayer for you, that you would burn brightly. Let's bow for a word of prayer.